morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, back from my holiday hiatus with new episodes for a new year. Our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where you can enjoy curbside pickup and take advantage of limited walk-in hours. Inside the Writer's Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is Melanie Benjamin, author of the just-released historical novel, The Children's Blizzard. Melanie and I met in 2013, shortly before my first novel was published, when she came to my house for lunch and a little Lewis Carroll show-and-tell. We've stayed in touch on social media ever since, and it's a pleasure to finally have her on the show. Melanie, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Oh, thanks for having me, Charlie. It's so nice to see your face again. <laughs> the <laughs> Children's Blizzard Children's Blizzard was one of those books that I read through almost without stopping. In fact, I read the whole second half just without even getting up out of my chair. And it does, to me, it does what I want all historical novels to do. It takes historical events and uses them to explore themes that are as relevant today as they were then. And we're going to talk about all of that. But first... I want to welcome you to my region of the country. You recently moved from Chicago to Williamsburg, Virginia. Why the move and how's it going? How do you like your new town? Yeah, I thought about that, that we are get, we're in your neck of the woods. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, we've lived in Chicago for the last 25 years. The last six of those years were in the city of Chicago in Old Town. Um, and, my, and at first, both of my sons lived there and then one moved away and he's now in Phoenix. The other one's still there. And, uh, you know, we loved it, but the... It, I think the pandemic and the protests, this, the necessary protests this spring and summer, um, it was it affected people in cities in a way different, mm-hmm. in a very different way than I think it has affected a lot of other people. And when everything you love is shut down and you can't li- literally cannot leave your house, or if you do leave your house, you're walking past boarded up buildings yeah. and police, you know, cement trucks pulled to block streets off and helicopters overhead all the time. And even when that was gone, it was still the fact that the reason we moved to the city was now no longer available to us and we don't know when it will come back. Um, it got us to thinking and we had maybe been thinking we would do this move in several years from now, uh, but it, the pandemic accelerated the decision. We're in a very big carpe diem mode right now. Yeah. And <laughs> we wanted to move somewhere warmer with more sun mm-hmm. um, where we could have a garden again. We loved our condo in the city, but it was a condo in the city. Um, I wanted to garden. I wanted to to be more active outdoors uh, for longer periods of time. And I had been in Williamsburg and maybe it was right after, maybe it was the year that we met. Like it was that long ago, like eight years pre- ago. Yeah. Thinking I was, well, researching a novel I thought I was going to write that was set in the Tidewater during the colonial era. And there's no better place to go to research that than Williamsburg, Virginia. Yeah, yeah. I stayed in that, a neighborhood that I fell in love with. So when my husband and I were making the list of things we wanted and there were a whole, there's a lot of criteria. And then suddenly Virginia rose to the top of the list of states. And I remembered Williamsburg from that trip i'm a historical junkie as you know and there's you know it's nirvana here and uh we actually bought a house sight unseen and moved here in september yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and I love it. I love it. I love the the fact that I've got camellia bushes blooming in my yard right now, and there's so much more sun. Uh, yeah, this is one of the things about being in the south. It's it's January, and my concern today is that my neighbor is using his leaf blower still uh, while I, I'm trying to record a podcast. <laughs> I have the same because we do live in a, we live in a neighborhood with some older. Um, older people who love their yards and are very proud of them and love their leaf blowers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I remember <laughs> it doesn't matter what time of day or what day it is, they're out there getting every leaf off and we have the same problems. Yeah. Now, when we first met, we had a conversation about historical novels and you said something that I, I very much agreed with then and I have repeated often since then. And that is about research. You said that um, you don't like to do too much research because then it makes it harder to be a novelist instead of being a historian. Could, could you elaborate on that a little bit for us, just in the context of historical novels in general? Yeah, I, I, this is something that I just lucked into purely blindly with my first novel, Alice, I Have Been. That I'm no Lewis Carroll historian like you are, <laughs> right? I had never heard of his story. There was I didn't know Lewis Carroll beyond the name of the book, and I wasn't all that much of a fan, to be honest, of the Alice books, you know, earlier. And so it was a history I didn't know. Um, so in that novel, when I wrote that novel, I did have a freedom I don't ha- didn't have after that novel of understanding what people expected about historical fiction. So there were a lot of constrictions on me. One was just a lack of experience. Two, you know, I didn't understand what readers would want to know. And three, I had no money. So there were a lot of reasons why I couldn't do a lot of research for that novel. But I had to rely on... Um, you know, I figured out the story I wanted to tell and that's the only thing I researched. And I, there was a point where I truly did want to go to Oxford. You know, I felt like I had to be there. I had to, yeah. to know, you know, which way did she turn on the street or which way did they should step up or down into the garden at the deanery. But I literally couldn't do it because I had no money. And that made me understand that I needed to rely on my imagination based on some research, but not too much research. So that's just that all kind of, help me find the formula that works for me. I do the research, but I only do enough that I need to know or the characters need to know for the story and the background to make it believable. But I realized early on that if I was concentrating too much on those details, like if it was going to ruin the book, if Alice stepped down instead of up <laughs> on a step, then I just was not writing the, you know, I wasn't writing a good book that yeah. it had to be about the characters and that my imagination can sometimes often paint a much more vivid portrait of a time or an era than relying on a history would. And, you know, when you do too much research, I think you suddenly feel a huge obligation to pack everything you've learned into the novel, even. Mm -hmm. And then if you do that, you're going to completely, you're going to crowd out the story. You're going to crowd out the characters. And as a novelist, my first obligation is to tell a really ripping good story and create really interesting characters and uh so yeah so I truly still believe and I I, after Alice the next book I thought I was going to write I suddenly decided I'm a historical fiction novel now and I actually went to places to go through letters and letters and records and I did that and then it killed the novel Mm -hmm. I like I had nowhere to go with my imagination so that's what works for me but as you know Every historical novelist has his or her own formula and process. Well, absolutely. And, I, you know, people have come to me and said, when are you going to write a novel about Lewis Carroll? And, my, you know, my answer is I know too much. I, yeah. I, would, I would be hung up on, on the history of it and getting the history mm-hmm. right and, and not leave room for, for the fiction. I think, I think it helps best. Like every one of my novels, I have had some kind of 
armchair historian uh, background about the era, maybe not about the character of that particular story, but at least about the era, like with Victorian England with Alice or in this one with the children's blizzard. I, you know, I, I, I've read enough histories and biographies and I love to read them to know the basic facts of what yeah. people were wearing yeah. or how they spoke or what was expected of them in society. Um, so, you know, I do start from that kind of baseline, which helps yeah. too. Yeah. 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 And I think, so to me, the most important piece of research that, that a historical novelist does is finding out what your story is going to be in the first place. How did you, you know, you've, you've written about a wide variety of, of people and places from, from Victorian England to, to Hollywood to the Great Plains. How do you go about finding the story, the, the place that you want to write about, the people you want to write about? And in particular, how did you find the story of the children's blizzard and, and what drew you to that? Well, you know, it's different with every book again, as you know, um, I do now I take a lot more time to try to find the subject because I've learned from experience in the last few years, uh, a couple books that I wrote too soon. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought I, I, I found a subject and I just started writing the book and maybe, and I finished the book, but then I realized this wasn't a good book um, that, and I think the first mistake was I jumped into a subject without fully digesting it and processing it and living with it and looking at it from a thousand different perspectives. So I have learned to take, I have to take more time now to find that subject and how I do it. It's just sometimes through reading, sometimes through art galleries, you know, like I did with Alice. I have been Um, in this one, I was ready to, to have a bit of a change in my trajectory of my career that my previous historical novels starting with Alice have been about real people yeah. who who have lived and people who I, I felt that we didn't know certain at least either their entire story or certain aspects of their story and that I felt that it was that's what I wanted to bring to light and when I but I feel that that particular genre of historical fiction got a bit crowded in recent years and I was no longer as inspired to go down that path. And I do like to challenge myself as a writer. And I never want to write the same book twice. Yeah. So I started thinking, one of my idols of historical fiction is was E.L. Doctorow mm-hmm. with novels like Ragtime yeah. and The March, which was about Sherman's March. And what he did was he took a real uh, either time period or an event and then fictionalize the characters around it. And sometimes there would be real people making cameos, but he basically, he took the real thing and then invented the characters. So I thought that seems appealing to me. And as I was talking to my editor, um, I wanted to write something a little bit grittier and a little bit bigger. I wanted a bigger landscape, um, a bigger canvas. And I had long wanted to write something a little bit more of what you might call a Western. And there was a lot of pushback from that because those books today don't sell as well as the kind of fiction that I was writing. Um, But then as we were thinking of this new direction and she mentioned it might be interesting to write about children. I knew the name of the children's blizzard. I knew the basics. So I blurted that out and she said, well, that sounds interesting. And I went off and did some more research. And that's when I found those things you mentioned that I felt could speak to us today. This, like, I mean, we, I wrote this before the pandemic, but the idea of, ch- of school teachers having to make life and death decisions yeah, in yeah. the classroom, right? And the idea of weather being bigger than us, right? We can never tame the weather. We, we are always at the weather will always, nature will always win. 
um, disinformation. And that actually was going on at the time, the, the fact that these immigrants, and this also became an immigrant story mm-hmm. yeah. with some parallels to immigration to date. In other ways, it was different. Um, but the disinformation given to these immigrants to get them here because of the greediness of the railroads and the boosters of these territories that they needed to make states. And they could only do that with white bodies in those territories. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also segregation and obviously the tragedy of Native Americans whose land it had been, all that. It just seemed to me this could be an amazingly big epic story with the grit and the canvas that I had really wanted to do. And the idea of it being a thriller, somewhat of a thriller, with the kind of a Jack London-ish kind of story, right? Survival against the elements. Yeah. Um, that also appealed to me. So it all just worked. And I sat and I thought and I thought and I thought and I thought and I created the story. I read the oral histories. I, you know, some of that became the basis of a few of my characters. And I just, I just thought about it for a really long time and realized this was the story I needed to tell. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really interesting hearing you talk about the difference between writing with a historical figure as your main character and writing with a historical event or a, or a time period and, and putting fictional characters in there. That's exactly what I've done and did in my latest novel where the historical figures are sort of just kind of window dressing, but the, but the right. main characters are, are, are the ones that you're interested in. Um, I, I want to go back to something you said just a minute ago, because I didn't know about this and I was fascinated by it. You, you portray in, in beautiful prose, by the way, the Thank great you. migration from Europe and the East Coast to the Great Plains as really a manipulation of the masses by capitalists. Do you yeah. think in a way, does that make it in some sort of sad way, a truly American event? Is that? Uh, I guess, yes. I mean, we have this image of that, right? And it Boy, a lot of it stems from the whitewashing of American history, <laughs> you know, uh, particularly like the Little House in the Prairie books. We had this mm-hmm. idea of noble people um, wanting more for their families or adventurous and wanting to tame this land. And I'm not saying there weren't people like that. But even if you go back to the gold rush, which was, you know, in the 1840s, mm-hmm. it was all about greed. Um, and in this case, I think, yes, from, from the moment the Homestead Act was signed by Abraham Lincoln in the middle of the Civil War, and by the way, at the same time, the Union Pacific Railroad was yeah. beginning and being built. <laughs> and, and, and that was, what, 1868, I think, when the Golden Spike was, yeah. uh, was struck, that it from that moment, it was all about railroads making money mm-hmm. from the, uh, on this great, you know, this great experiment that they had just done um, from, from owning the property surrounding the railroads and building the railroads towns to the fact that once you have a railroad, you absolutely need goods and people to transport on said railroad. And this was after, after the heartbreak, obviously, of the Indian Wars that yeah. happened after the Civil War into the 1870s. And basically ended with with uh, the battle uh well later on the battle of wounded knee but the little big horn and custer and all that um then it was there weren't enough bodies how are you going to get people there because we took the land for the native americans and now you know again these territories wanted to become states and these towns wanted to make money so yeah so these boosters they paid people to write pure propaganda describing the great plains which was an inland desert with the harshest weather on in you know in this country at least at the time um as 
a veritable Garden of Eden where the springs and the winters were mild and anything would grow and there was enough water. And you know, these are the, this is the time of gra grasshoppers raining from the skies yeah. and prairie fires and floods and these horrible, horrible winters during the 1880s. Um, yeah, so I, I guess, yeah, I think that we have to look at it in that way as well as the whole manifest destiny thing, yeah, yeah. which again is a white man's uh, version of history. I, I think it's worth mentioning briefly here, uh, which I, I just thought of this, but the fact that you this is a this is a novel that um, by its title is about a blizzard, is about the absolute coldest cold you can imagine. And yet I believe if I'm not mistaken, the first or one of the very first scenes is a fire. Uh, you talk about these prairie fires. So it really sort of gives you a sense of these extremes that they, yeah. they had to deal with. We, mm -hmm. You talked a, a little earlier about not being able to travel to Oxford um, when you were working on your book about Lewis Carroll and Alice. I, I do find if I'm able to, um, I find a really deep connection between place and story. So if I can put myself in that place, I find it helps me. Did you did you travel with this book? Did you go to the Dakotas and Nebraska? Um, not particularly for this book, but I had been there enough in recent years that I, yeah. it, it was very helpful. You're right. If And you know what? Some of my novels, and I think the, the Aviator's Wife comes to immediate mind, was not a novel rooted in a particular place. Yeah, yeah. Uh, other than the sky. And, <laughs> you know, um, so it wasn't, a, I well, while I could have traveled for that novel, I didn't because it just didn't make sense. But pre other novels, The Swans of Fifth Avenue, yeah, sure. I decided to go to New York and write that off. And then Mistress, Mistress, yeah. who wouldn't, right? Mistress of the Ritz, yes, I was in Paris and I stayed at the Ritz. Um, so this one, surely, if I hadn't been familiar enough with the landscape, I would have gone. Yeah. But um, at the time, I lived in Chicago and my son lived in Denver and we had a lot of road trips out to visit him. And you basically have to drive the entire width of the state of Nebraska to yeah. get to Denver. And you know what? <laughs> it, yeah. And a lot of it's the same. And also, you know, again, though, the, I'm sure you find out when you do travel to a place in the 1880s, Nebraska didn't look like yeah. it does today. Yeah, um, yeah. There weren't any trees, the trees that we see when, and there are not a lot of them even now, but the ones that are there were planted by these people yeah. who came. Yeah. So the land that they first saw is not the land that we see today. And I also knew Omaha fairly well, having been there a bit, but you know, again, it's not the city it was in 1880. So then you have to rely on the written record of those places. So yes, to answer your question, had I not been enough familiar enough with Nebraska, I'm sure I would have gone. And I did at one point wanted to go to the homesteading, Homestead um, National Monument, which, but it's way off the yeah. main interstate. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I do hope to get there sometime but um so that kind of well, this your this novel certainly places you there and and as you said it's it's a different it's a different place in the world of this novel than, than it is today um you you begin some of your chapters especially some early on um in what i would call a documentary style you begin with you begin with documents a weather report uh an advertisement one of these advertisements that the booster is encouraging people to come to nebraska um did, did you create these yourself? Did you find um, documents? And how do you see the sort of interaction between document and, and narrative working in a historical novel? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, the weather reports are the weather reports that were published in the mm -hmm. newspapers prior and during, at, prior and after the blizzard. Uh, the newspaper article, quote unquote, that this jaded newspaper man in my novel, Gavin Woodson, wrote, I made that up. 
um, based on some things I had read about the nature of the kind of things that they did publish. And then there were a series of articles later on in the book in the aftermath of the novel um, that supposedly were in the, the Omaha Daily Bee, which was an actual paper yeah. um, and did actually kind of um, do the whole heroin fund that I talk about in, in the aftermath of the book. But I made up the articles Bit. But but again, there was a heroin's fund. There were yeah, lists yeah. of things that people uh, donated to these young women. They wow. kind of lifted up as heroines in the aftermath, including cows. So you know, so those are things I made up. I um, don't normally do a lot of that. In why well, I don't know, maybe I do. Boy, that's a good question. Like Mistress of the Ritz didn't have anything like that. Um, but this one, I thought it made sense to do it because one, because one of the characters was this kind of you know, um, dissipated, failed journalist who yeah. is reduced to writing pablum, as he calls it, and mm -hmm. then finds redemptive arc in his stories after the blizzard. So certainly made more sense to, to have them in this particular book. So I do think I like to invent those. Although, you know, now that I think about it, Mrs. Tom Thumb, we actually used actual little articles between the chapters of that book. Um, because it was set in the 1860s. And mm -hmm. I found that the real, the things that people read about in newspapers in the 1850s and 60s were so interesting and yeah. such a colorful background to that story that it worked. So I think if it works, if it makes sense, if it adds to a sense of the book, if it helps the reader understand what people were interested in, what people were reading in that time, I think it, it, it can work. Um, I would always try to maybe invent them myself a little bit yeah, more yeah. than based on reality. I feel yeah. like sometimes those those documents, whether real or invented, they they kind of ground me in the world of the book. I mean, uh -huh. it's something I can I can grab hold on that's something that feels real, and then and then it kind of pulls me into the story. And um, you know, now that I think about it, other than um, Alice, I have been, which did not have any, but the other two books that really rely on relied on them, like I said, Mrs. Tom Thumb, and now this one are the ones that are set further back in history yeah, than yeah. my other novels. And perhaps that's why I, I went in that direction because the reader perhaps need, needs a little bit more help to get into that world. Yeah, I think sometimes even the language of the world too can be yes. helped with that. Yes. I mean, I get, you know, with Escaping Dreamland, I invented a lot of documents. The most fun one was the the excerpts from the the fictional children's series books that my characters are writing. And to yeah. try to recreate that language you know, as a writer, oh. it pulls it pulls me into the world. It helps mm -hmm. me to sort of inhabit that space. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, let's talk about the let's talk about the elephant in the room. If there's but one thing that unites all of humanity, if there's one thing that is the subject of conversation the world over, it's got to be the weather, right? <laughs> and weather is a huge part of this novel. I mean, the title is yeah. the children's blizzard. Um, I, 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 mean, I think you could even say that the weather is a character in this novel. Oh, I think so. But how yeah. do you write about a topic that is so talked about, that is so worn out, if you will, and and keep it fresh? How do you say things other than it was cold and it was snowing? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have to say that when I talk about how much fun this novel was, it might sound odd for those because there is tragedy oh, yeah. it's <laughs> in a, this it's novel. A, 
It is called the children's blizzard put, for a reason. Put a um, coat on before you read it. I would advise yes, people. Definitely. <laughs> and, um, you know, while I, I, I describe it as a novel where you will, you know, I can't sugarcoat it. There's tragedy in this novel, yep. but there's a lot of other emotions and hopes and hopes and, and courage and bravery and love as well. So you will feel all the emotions, but yes, the most, the f- reason I had such a fun time writing this novel was because of describing the blizzard. What a challenge, what just a writing exercise that was. I truly had to come up with a thousand different words for cold, snow, wind. Uh, you know, I, I had to describe it. And each character is out in it in a different, they're having their own experience yeah, yeah. in the same blizzard so they're describing it and they're experiencing it all in different separate ways. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it just was fun. I, I, I have no other way. And it, it was a challenge. Certainly. Yeah. I, I don't say it was hard to do, but it was, it was it required a lot of concentration and creativity and imagination and going back through the manuscript many, many times to make yeah. sure I wasn't repeating the same phrase over and over I did have, because of this collection of stories of the survivors called In All Its Fury, The Blizzard of 1888, um, I did have uh, some eyewitness accounts of what the cloud looked like when it was roaring in and the electricity that we talk about in the book. Many people talked about that. The sparks, you know, that all of a sudden stoves were throwing off blue sparks as the storm was coming. And um, the, the, the consistency of the snow was marked up, was remarked about a lot because it wasn't a normal kind of light fluffy snow it was this kind of gritty pebble-like snow that clogged the nose and the eyes of people which didn't help in the survival rate um so i had some you know descriptions to go on and then from that point it was just how can i describe these elements this nature this weather um in a thousand different ways but i i loved doing it it was so much fun yeah i yeah. i didn't go out in the snow myself <laughs> <laughs> um i have a son who lives in denver as i said though and at one point during the writing there was a major blizzard that hit denver and i told him that if he loved his mother he would walk out on the plains without a coat and gloves and tell me what it felt like he didn't do that oh man. <laughs> I well i mean it, it it you really do uh capture that i mean we always in when we're writing a novel we're trying to to capture an experience and as you said you've got all these different characters experiencing this in different ways having to make different Mm -hmm. split second decisions that are that are going to end up being life or death decisions that on any other day would be meaningless unimportant decisions Um, yeah and and i think that really you know it keeps us on the edge of our seat it 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 really does and Um, i love that i love that aspect of it these were ordinary people very young girls you know these teachers were 16 17 we forget that about the prairie schoolhouse who had to make these decisions in an instant um and i love that idea of ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances yeah and that's why the second half of the book, I did want to follow up after the blizzard to see how those, those split second decisions made, you know, in a moment of terror by extremely young girls impacted everybody's lives, the lives for long, yeah. long after it. Yeah. yeah. Well, we, we talked about this a little bit before about the way you, you create characters and situations that have continued relevance uh, even in, 2021. So let's let's talk about a few of those in a little more depth. So first of all, there's Gavin, there's a newspaper man who, instead of writing the truth, he is essentially writing stories to forward a particular agenda. 
connect that to 2021. Uh, that shouldn't be a hard line to draw, <laughs> no, but, but, but is that something that. you're really, I mean, were you thinking about that at the time about how people yeah. are out yelling about fake news and, and yeah, you was. turn and into whatever like network you, you want to, to say what you want to hear? Right. And, you know. and I don't like to use the, fake, the term fake news because it's a pejorative yeah. term um, used by one particular sure. narrative yeah. to yeah. cast dispersions on legitimate journalism right. so i'd rather use although i have used the worst pictures it's more of a disinf disinformation so yes i wrote this book in 2019 mm -hmm. um turned it in like new year day after new year's 2020 uh so um there was a lot of disinformation going on even then right yeah. <laughs> that was yeah. only so we were in the midst of this particular political moment where where lies are accepted as truth by certain mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. and are used to further a political agenda. Yeah. And I uh, definitely, definitely grab, I mean, that's the, that's the thing I really do look at when I am trying to tell, looking for a subject for a novel, I really do look for those things that we yeah. can relate yeah. to today. It's, that's just my purpose as a historical novelist. I do want you to learn about the past but I also want you to see how some things never change. Yeah. And so that was immediately, it was like, oh my gosh, this is huge for this story. This is going to be so relatable to what we're experiencing And today. I think, you know, what's interesting to me is the way you portray Gavin. You know, he's not setting out to be evil or to manipulate people. The, the guy just needs a job, you know, yeah. and he's, he's, yeah. he's sort of, and so I think it, it casts it in a more personal light than we, maybe sometimes right, because he's not the guy who's sitting there in his boardroom saying hmm, no no we no, need no. to you know we need to get bodies out here let's do it by any means possible he's just the schmo being paid to do it because right, right. yes he's left he's had a he had a run-in with joseph pulitzer in new york yeah. and finds himself in godforsaken iowa and, and nebraska and, and i'm sorry omaha and not real happy about it so i mean he does have disdain um both for himself, self-loathing is a huge part of his character, and for the the rubes, as he calls them, yeah, the people yeah. who believed him. Yeah, but yet, yeah. the blizzard, and this is what I found so interesting about his character. He, I didn't, you know, as I did more research and I discovered the aftermath of the storm and how the newspapers portrayed it, I thought, well, this this gives him that redemptive arc. Yeah, um, yeah. And that there was a moment in the writing when I got to basically the halfway point of the book, and I wrote that first chapter where he's going out after the storm out on the prairie um very much against his will but he finds himself compelled to do it i just realized oh he's this is the whole second this is what the second half of the book is about it's yeah. him yeah. and 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 whatever this whole idea of the maiden of the prairie means to him and what he needs to do and it redeemed him yeah. and allowed and he also there was an aspect of his character who did not see these immigrants as people right there's a lot about how they were only numbers Mm -hmm. And that they were faceless, you know, they, once they got here, nobody cared what happened to them. And he was one of them. And through Gavin's story, suddenly he sees them as real people. Yeah. And yes, there are some parallels of, between that and today and the immigrant story today as well. Yeah. I, you know, I hearing you talk about how you figured out what the second half of the book was going to be. I mean, I had this moment where, you know, the, the, the storm is essentially over. And I turned the page and it says book two. And I was like, wait, there's more? What can, what can happen? You know, and, it, and it's, I mean, book two is great. I, but it was, uh, 
it was just a, it was an interesting moment as a reader to have that thought like this is a book about a blizzard now the blizzard's over where where is she going to go you know i mean it, it, i i thought i knew where the book was going in the first half because it's a book about children in a blizzard i'm guessing from the title right and that's exactly what the first half was so um so i love that that you kind of you kind of grab us up short there um uh, yeah in, it was an interesting way to do it I risk to be honest and i don't know that i thought it's just the way the book naturally spoke to me. And um, I didn't, I think it would have been the easy thing to make the whole book about set during the blizzard. But I truly found in the research part, the aftermath just as interesting. Yeah, and I think um, it gave, it, it allowed you to give the characters a, a real arc that went beyond just, you know, mm -hmm. a, a, an afternoon or a couple of days. So race and ethnic heritage, these play roles um, on on in the immigrant story and the story of the plains and in the story of this novel um one of the characters i was fascinated by was ollie Tennant. tell us a little bit about ollie and and why you included him in the novel well because it wasn't just again i go back to the little house in the prairie books which for a woman of my generation those were the they were just like little women they were seminal books of our childhood yeah. oh sure and um there is a huge uh passion and love and nostalgia for these books but they are problematic books today um because again talk about whitewashing american history um there are hardly any immigrants in those books and when they are they're not actually spoken of very well you know the the core family of those books the ingles those are those are a native born a native born white family yeah. right and they're the heroes of the story and they when they mention native americans it's it's from that white person's point of view, and it's not particularly good. And there are hardly any people of color that they encounter. And like I said, when they do encounter immigrants, they're kind of always kind of poor and not strange creatures, right? Kind of outside. So part of me really wanted to kind of reckon with that and, and, and um, challenge that and write a book for people like me who grew up with that, but maybe telling the real story. Yeah. So that's how Ollie Tennant came about um because it wasn't white just white people settling the plains and there was a black homesteading settlement settlement out that i mentioned in the novel that really was a settlement the homestead act was interesting and in that for the time it did not discriminate against race or gender it only required that the head of a household and that's all they said and then later on, they put in that who had not taken up arms against the United States. So they really didn't want, and partly that's why they didn't want slavery, you know, because this happened in the middle of the Civil War to spread to these areas. Right. And obviously Native Americans, you know, out of the picture, but it did allow them for black mm -hmm. heads of the household. It allowed for female heads of the household to take advantage of the Homestead Act. That was that was the the idea it, the reality was obviously different because there was still a lot of discrimination and there was but still that allowed for there to be some people of color and some female solo homesteaders on the plains so ollie represents that particularly in those towns like omaha that were um, cow towns until the railroad came right and in those smaller towns a person like ollie a black per, a black man could own a business in you know, in the center of town and the town wasn't very big and he could cater to 
everybody. And that was okay. But as the money came in, in towns like Omaha, all of a sudden that wasn't okay. Yeah. So in Ollie's story, we see that we see a man being kind of forced out to the North side of town where the other people like him are and his journey in accepting that is very interesting. Um, his children are taught in a different way than even the immigrants children are taught. And he sees that and he becomes outraged by it. Um, you know, he, his, in his name alone, I thought was very interesting. You yeah. know, he's referred yeah. to by a, a nickname that people think is, you know, he doesn't have a name. He's just got this nickname. And then we just discover in, in the next chapter that his real name, what his real name is and that they've messed it up and they see him. They see him as a Buffalo soldier. That's the way the white man wants to see him. It's the sure. only way the white man can see him. He's so much more than that. Um, I wanted more of Ollie in the book, to be honest. It is an interesting thing today as a white writer to write about people of color. Uh, we want to be inclusive and I want to tell the truth that there wasn't just white people on the plains, but you know, there's also, we have to be very, very careful about cultural appropriation as writers oh, sure. these days too. So that's why he is in the novel, but uh, maybe his story isn't the prominent story. But it's one of the things that I thought was, was remarkable. And I don't think I'm giving away too much here is that in a, in a novel where, you know, people are in grave danger of their lives in this, in this blizzard. One of the most harrowing moments for me is simply Ollie Tennant walking into the schoolroom where his children are educated mm -hmm. and the white schoolmistress being so afraid of him and him realizing that if he doesn't handle this situation just right, he'll be hanging from I a mean, tree. Yeah, he doesn't. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that, I thought yeah. that was, that was really uh, a really powerful way to sort of just, yeah, you know, they tell us show don't tell. That was a good, a really great way to sort of get Thanks. into the the mindset of, mm -hmm. of what it must have been like. You know, Omaha had um, in the years after this time period had a really, really horrible race problem yeah. and race riots and lynchings a lot in that town. Mm -hmm. And um, I knew that I knew that is the history of Omaha today. And um, so I really felt I had to show the beginning of that. Plus, yeah. I just was yeah. thinking about. Again, I, I mean, I was reading the re doing the research. I was I found out the, the first all black school was around this time, and the yeah. first uh, female black school teacher was hired around soon after this, around this time. Mm -hmm. So, in Ollie's journey to find his children being taught out of charity by a white missionary, you know, girl. Um, that allowed me to explore all the things that you just talked about, you know, yeah, yeah. his, his knowledge of who he is in this town and how he has to handle the situation. Um, you know, even though at the time, again, maybe Omaha was a little bit more, um, uh, I know, not as segregated as it became. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, thank you. That, that was a really Im important scene for me to yeah. get right. Yeah. And I, I am happy to say that I have a, a, my friend, Ed, who is a uh, black male writer, read it and really felt that it, because it was, you know, it was a, it was a, a fine line, you know, a tightrope yeah. oh, for me absolutely. to write. Yeah. And yeah. He, he approved. So there, you have a character, Anna, whose husband, Gunner, is, well, I'll just let the reader discover more about <laughs> Gunner. But, but, but here's the one way that Anna describes her husband. She said, he had gotten into his idiotic head that owning acres of land was something he was owed now that he was an American. Do you think entitlement is somehow woven into the DNA of what we 
still call the American dream? Oh, I do. Again, especially when you're talking about the white male perspective, I absolutely do. And this is a man who came from Norway, but it's like, I think it's interesting to think about what even today, how immigrants see themselves as Americans and what it means to be an American and that our ownership of land, of a lot of land still is in our DNA, right? Home ownership here means so much more than it does in Europe, oh, yeah. even today. Yeah. And so that, I, I just thought that would be an interesting thing to kind of just tease right there in the story of Gunner, um, that as soon as the Homestead Act He's already here, I believe. I believe they're already there before the home, before they decide to settle. They settled in St. Paul with other Norwegian immigrants. Um, they were homesteaders, but then he becomes an American, and then he feel then he's like, I'm an American. I must own land. Yeah, yeah. And I really thought that was funny, actually. You um, posted a lovely picture online the other day that showed a shelf of all of your novels lined up. <laughs> Do you think there's a a theme or an idea that that ties all of your work together? Boy, I think authors are the last ones to spot that. <laughs> Don't you? I mean, people- Yeah, probably so, me, yeah. You know, people have said to me, this is so different from your other books because they're so glamorous. And I have never seen it that way, mm -hmm. uh, except maybe with Swans of Fifth Avenue and Mistress of the Ritz, but even so, that's World War II. Uh, so I never saw it that way. Absolutely didn't see it that way, but uh, many people have commented that that's been the theme of my previous books, hmm, glamorous people yeah. living glamorous lives. And this is not at all. So that stunned me. Um, I guess it, right now, so far, I would say perhaps just history from a, a more female perspective, mm -hmm, untold mm -hmm. women's stories. And there is that in this novel with the, yeah. the school teachers, for sure. Um, and in the character of Anna Peterson, who um, I have to say really delighted me, her her character took me in a place I never set out thinking she was going to go. And it's a dark place, but also a redemptive place. And I felt that she kind of embodied the, like if in the Little House books, if you really look at it, you see how, how horrible it must have been to be Ma Ingalls constantly dragged from post to post to post by her husband, who was a little bit unhinged, I think, <laughs> and constantly having to leave family and friends behind and start all over for no reason at all. And in Anna, I felt this is the darker side of my angle. Yeah, yeah. um, but she also, I think it was important to talk about her because there were certainly women for whom the prairie, uh, to whom the prairie did some really um, dark things yeah. and yeah. Um, messed with their psyche and their mind and their emotional well-being being, because they had no um, voice in the matter and they didn't want to be there. So this book still certainly does kind of tie into the, the female perspective, the stories of women that we don't know. Um, I guess that's the theme yeah. of them. I, I do feel in this one going in a different direction, something I'm interested in, in continuing to do with, with future books, and I have an idea for the next one, is finding beauty out of tragedy. Yeah. yeah. Was something I felt very proud of about this book, and it really was a driving force for me as I was writing it. Yes, it's tragic, but there were, again, to find beauty in this and um, forgiveness. And, yeah. and um, that was really the human spirit, right? Uh, that was really important for me to, to do. And I think I want to keep doing that. So maybe yeah. that's a new theme for my books. 
Well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. Uh, you should be able to answer each is of them. Is it the Proust thing that they used to, that Lip, James Lipton, Lipton this is, used to This do? was inspired by what James Lipton used to do, except yeah. that we, we came up with our own questions that are more okay, um, about writing and the writing life. So okay. um, if you're ready, we will, we will begin. I'm as ready as I'll ever be. Okay. What word do you love to work into your writing? Uh, I'm just guessing... Uh, dissipated maybe okay what word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing there's a phrase okay she let out a breath she didn't know she was holding (laughs) i have become so that's like one of my just real pet peeves that i pass it on to my husband and whenever he encounters it in his own reading because he reads a lot of science fiction that i don't he always points it out to me yeah Yeah, i've ruined that phrase for him yeah where's your favorite place to write I always, I'm kind of a wanderer when mm-hmm. I write, um, have a laptop, laptop, will travel. But I, in the new home we just moved to, I have a beautiful office I'm very lucky to have with yeah. full of light and a fireplace and high ceilings and beautiful, there's built-in bookshelves over here too. So uh, I'm very much looking forward to my little boot chair over there, which is my writing chair. Yeah. And I actually spent a lot of time finding this chair, sitting in a lot of chairs, Um <laughs> With my laptop, I brought my laptop to furniture stores and I sat and I sat and I sat until I found the perfect writing chair. So it's that chair. Where could you never write? Coffee shop. Couldn't do it. Don't understand how people do. What rule of grammar do you pay least attention? (laughs) I use adverbs in my writing and I know a lot of people who, you know, adore Ernest Hemingway feel that the adverb is just should not be in, used in your writing, but I'm a fan of Bill Bryson's writing and he is the master yeah, yeah. of adverbs. <laughs> and so, yeah, I use adverbs. I do. Yeah. What's the first book you remember reading? Probably Betsy Tacey and Tib, the Betsy Tacey series of books. Mm-hmm. The very first one is for younger readers. Yeah. Probably that book. Uh, what are you reading now? Well, uh, oh, I'm in the middle of Greer McAllister's Arctic Fury. Oh, Arctic yeah. Fury. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm halfway through. We did a, an event together last night through Fountain Bookstores. And you know how you know how crazy it is right before a book comes okay. out. Yeah. I, I had not had time. And I fully intended to just kind of breeze through this book, skim it, so we, I could talk about it. And I got so engrossed that I can't skim yeah. through this book. I have yeah. to read every word. So I'm halfway through that right now. Uh, what book would you like to have written? Howard's End. It's my favorite book. Oh yeah, yeah. Of all time, it, every, what it, it what it says, how it does it, um, the beautiful prose, the yeah. characters. It's my favorite book. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? Well, I you know I still would like to write uh, like a rip roaring rest western. I really love, <laughs> really want to write a western. Um, uh, Paula Giles, you know, is just I love her novels. Um, News of the World was one of my favorite books of the last few years, and um, so she's doing it very well. But I just Larry McMurtry, obviously, yeah, you know, yeah. Lonesome Dove. Yeah. Love, I would love to write something like Lonesome Dove, Lonesome Dove, a big epic sometime. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know that if that's going to be the right thing for me to do. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? I've, I've had so many beautiful uh, messages from readers over the years. And I've had people tell me that their books changed their lives. I've had people tell me that opened their eyes to the truth of their marriage. I got that oh a lot with the aviator's life. Yeah. Um, what you said when you have to, you can't stop reading it. And in this case, <laughs> I've had so many people tell me, even my father, 
bless his heart, not always the biggest fan of my books. <laughs> um, but he did like The Aviator's Wife. And I think he likes this one because he did tell me he, he would look up from the reading and look at the window and be stunned not to see Blizzard a blizzard oh, outside yeah. his window. Yeah, so yeah. when when I hear things like that, where I hear pe- that people have been so transported into the world that that they feel it physically, viscerally, mm-hmm. that I love to hear that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and my guest today has been Melanie Benjamin, whose novel, The Children's Blizzard, is available wherever books are sold. Melanie, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Charlie. This was just delightful. Inside the Writer Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Inside the Writer Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. In our next episode, I'll be talking to another historical novelist, Erica Roebuck, about her new novel, Invisible Woman. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. (music) ¶¶